Hello and welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology entrepreneur, investor, and VC at Portfolio Ventures. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. We speak to some of the best founders and investors, many from unicorn companies, and ask them about their journey, operational insight, tips, lessons, stories, and anything that can help uncover what it takes to build a high-growth business. This week's episode is with Georgi Ganev, CEO at Chinovic. Chinovic is a public-listed venture fund primarily investing in digital consumer businesses. Georgie has been CEO since 2018. Before working at Shinovic, Georgie was CEO at Dustin Group. In this episode, we cover leadership, habits, investment committees, hiring, and lots more. Let's get started. Hi, Georgie. Welcome to Riding Unicorns. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. It's our pleasure. So, uh, Georgie, maybe you could start by introducing yourself and also... Shinevik, if I'm pronouncing that right, and yeah, what you guys do. Yeah, sure, you pronounce it correctly. So I'm the CEO of a growth investor called Shinevik. So we are a publicly listed company, patient capital, permanent capital vehicle. I've been here for five years. We have, during that period, invested quite a lot of capital into businesses we believe can transform you know, large industries within healthcare, various consumer services, financial services, and now lately within the climate tech space around decarbonization. Before that, I've mostly been running businesses or being part of, of you know, operations, you could say. Uh, I'm an engineer by training, but that was some time ago. And uh, I was part of starting a company once upon a time uh, within speech technologies so of voice recognition and text-to-speech. But that was probably 20 years too early. So it worked fine in theory, but without smartphones, it was not a service could be rolled out as we see today, but good experience. For sure. And I know um, Shinevik through your investment in Omnipresent, which is one of the companies that, that we led at episode one. But yeah, it's been a, been a really interesting career for, for you as, as CEO and, and CMO of, of various companies. I'd just love to hear what you think being a CEO or being a leader means? I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's about creating value for various stakeholders. Firstly, obviously, shareholders, but it's also about, I think, finding out what's, how do you create that long-term value? And you need to have engaged employees. You need to take the right strategic decisions. You need to be able to make that trade-off between kind of, again, short-term and long-term priorities. So it's guiding, I would say, a company through that journey. And that includes all sorts of challenges. And mostly, I think it's about sticking to the plan once decided, but yet being open enough to adapt when needed. So it's, it's a, maybe a fluffy way of describing it. But I think as a CEO, especially in an ever-changing world, it is, to, it is really to, to have you know, one foot at the, the gas pedal at the same time, being very, very uh, clear that sometimes you need to break and take a view, recalibrate, and then continue, you know, pushing forward again. So that is probably how I see it. And how, how different is it between different organizations? I mean, you know, you, you've, 
you've been being CEO of Chinovic is, I would imagine, quite different from from being CEO of a speech technology company. So how or, or, or do the principles remain the same? No, I think it can be quite difficult. I mean, overarching principles, you know, might be the same in terms of creating value for your customers and, and of course, to shareholders. Because obviously, if you don't have a product that you can sell, there is no, not much of a business, right? So that kind of, that remains the same. What I think is quite different, if I compare it to my previous role that I had before I joined Chinevik, that was for an e-commerce player, that we grew from a, you know, a couple of hundred million euros to over a billion euros, driving kind of sales and optimizing sales every day. It's very kind of clear that what you do today, the decision you take today, you get feedback from in a quite, it's a very short feedback loop, if you will, right? Whereas if you're looking at a company like Shinovic, the way you lead is through kind of indirect actions rather than direct actions when it comes to business decisions. So the feedback loop tends to be much longer and it's not as easy to kind of recalibrate. And also for that sense, you know, the complexity typically increases, right? And you have multiple kind of strategic decisions to take every day that might not actually be something you can evaluate until years ahead. So from that perspective, I think it's, it's different. It's very different how you kind of act as an organization and therefore as a CEO compared to in a more operational business. But the kind of overarching goal remains the same. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all in the venture space, you know, struggle with that long feedback loop sometimes, particularly people starting in their career. What habits have you learned along the way that maybe you didn't do initially as a CEO, but that you do now that you think help you in your role? I think there are a lot of habits that I think are important and some habits you don't want to, you don't want to have, right? So it's difficult to just mention a few. I think it's a lot by defined by kind of um, the tasks you have in front of you and, and probably your combined experience with the broader team, because this is not a one-man show at the end of the day. It's, it's a set of people that hopefully create some diversity of thoughts and a better decision-making process. So I think maybe what I've learned over the years is that you need to find a very good balance, a delicate balance almost between top-down and bottom-up. So being very clear in what you want to achieve and the kind of, again, overarching objectives. But at the same time, empower people with accountability, with the right responsibility to create some sort of, you know, contribution or plan to deliver on those objectives. And that, I think, is a balance. It's not a habit, but I think it's something that requires you as a leader to know when to be very clear in what is expected, probably you know, what we want to achieve and why, but then the how needs to be kind of delegated. So you get the engagement from, from everyone else. And I think that is something very similar between a board and its management, that the board who represents the shareholders needs to be clear in what is expected, but at the same time, the management of a company and the team needs to be empowered to also deliver on that plan and define that plan and recommend that plan. So that's something that I think is extremely important and 
I don't think you will be complete for that matter in how you do these things. It's, it's a kind of an iterative process to continuously learn and become better. You talked there about the vision and the direction, the sort of big level thinking versus the sort of more day to day. How regularly should a leader be communicating the big vision stuff? Is that something that needs to be brought up weekly, monthly, quarterly? How frequently do you refer back to the sort of overriding mission when communicating with the team? I think mostly what leaders do is that they underestimate the importance of communication. And I think I once heard that first you need to tell people what to tell them, then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. So kind of not being afraid of repeating, because if you are starting to get you know bored to hear again what you have said to people over and over, then probably you can do a little bit more. So I think the simple answer is that I think you need to communicate, even if the plans are not changed. Because people almost, you know, expect things to change because there are so many things that are changing around us. And I think as a leader, you need to realize certain things has to change because of different circumstances, but some things need to be constant. And to repeat that message and reiterate also what's being constant I think is equally important, not only what you add or what you change on top of what you're already doing, but what you also plan to stick to. And for that matter, what you will stop doing. I think it's super interesting that, I mean, you, you mentioned having lots of, you know, great diversity of thought in a team. And I think it's super important. And we talk about it a lot at episode one, and particularly in the context of making investment decisions, but like the same goes for strategic decisions as a company. And I just wonder, we all need to find a healthy balance of challenging each other and having that diversity of thought and actually not putting each other off and making it too difficult for people to get their ideas through and to support an investment in a company or support a strategic decision. How do you, how do you think about getting that balance right so that people aren't sort of pushed against too hard and they can, you know, there's the right amount of pushback, but people can get things through eventually. I think this is a very important question because sometimes what you mix up is allowing everyone to ask questions or to give feedback with trying to find some kind of consensus or alignment around every question. And that to me is necessarily not the same things. I think in a decision-making process to allow every question being asked before you take the decision, not afterwards, when you hear things like, yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that, or I, I thought that when we heard this, this proposal, but I didn't say anything. That's the worst thing ever, right? You want people to speak up. You want people to challenge. But if they expect that their input will be taken, or let's say if they always expect that their input would change the decision-making process or the decision. That is probably not the way I see it. It's important to take that into account and to discuss and debate and encourage people to not only be contrarians, but to actually be very clear that this is my view and this is the risk I'm seeing. Or, on the contrary, why you have such a conviction in, in a matter and present new facts if there are facts. But then you also need to trust the actual decision-making process that on the balance, we will come to a conclusion. And that might not be the same thing as 
trying to find that you know that consensus and being a swede i think unfortunately we're good at the first thing but we're not as good at the latter yeah i think it's i certainly often find it's just about challenging that conviction and it can be quite an instinctive thing to know when to stop with that challenging because at the end of the day we have to rely on ultimately hiring smart people having smart people around us who can make good decisions but it's almost just testing someone's conviction in a decision is i think quite helpful yeah it is but i think you also need to make sure that you have a high degree of psychological safety so that people can show vulnerability and people can actually expose themselves saying that we might have might not have all the questions or the answers sorry for a particular question because if you have a culture where people are challenging by just saying one you know extra time are you really really sure that you want to do this i mean that's not really helpful is it but it but to add a new perspective what about this have you thought about the following risk or the following opportunity that can actually stimulate a different different discussion or a different view on something but so so maybe the answer in your first question is that if i feel as a, as a facilitator that we're not com- coming anywhere because the same kind of challenge is repeated over and over again and clearly if i believe that the person being challenged has listened has understood and are still convinced that this is the right thing to do then of course we need to lean on people's expertise and conviction yeah and how frequently and how big of a group are your ic meetings investment committee meetings and are you involved in those do you chair them how was the structure of like an investment committee at Geneva it's like two things here it's like a funnel right so in the top of the funnel i would say we gather a bunch of people to get all the perspective but the kind of the further down you come in the funnel and the closer we come to an actual commercial decision the few per, fewer people will be in the room and the last kind of decision point is is me and two of my most senior investors kind of co-head of investments because again what i'm afraid of is to have that type of consensus driven decision process which is not necessarily the best way to to take a decision like an investment opportunity or to decline but on the other hand i would like to kind of combine that by having as many different views as possible before we come there so we have actually looked at things from all different angles so that's basically how we run it and ultimately i'm the one kind of cha- sharing this body but i think it's we try to run it or at least i try to run it in a way that everyone can speak up in that group independently of position and responsibility but this is difficult because at the same time once again it's this balance this delicate balance about top down and bottom up i referred to earlier right you want an organization that are that is as aligned as possible but yet you want to have a broad view on things and how do you end up not having an endless debate of certain things but also come into action so i think it's very important maybe what's even more important is to not end up into a blame gaze it situation i think that's probably what can hurt or destroy any culture in any company no matter if it's a kind of investment investment firm or or anything else that 
you don't learn from your mistake, you don't discuss your mistake, but you try to find who actually did the mistake. And that, that should, of course, be clear because it comes with accountability. But probably if you're afraid of doing mistakes as an investor, I'm certain that, that you will never find a home runs either. So, so instead, we have done plenty of mistakes since I joined Shinovic. And I think we, have, we could spend even more time in, in kind of scrutinizing what we did wrong and what we learned. But also remember to actually look at what has gone according to plan or even better because you can learn from those cases as well right but that's the open climate you need to ensure you have and it's it's difficult in any high performing organization with people that would like to see themselves as winners <laughs> that's what we're here right we would like to do the best deals and we would like to be the best best firm and, and so forth and that drives a certain behavior that i think is extremely powerful but on the other hand you need to kind of nurture the other side of the culture as well so so what do you look for when when hiring investors then because i think it's like what what you're talking about initially comes from the top but then over time it becomes a, a product of the group who, who you've hired so how do you test for for these these sorts of characters who are going to be who are going to bring that kind of healthy balance and bring that supportive culture i mean First thing I would like to say is that we don't believe that there is one type of profile that we are looking for. We would like to see this, you know, as a kind of great mix of a bunch of people instead. So one way of looking at this is, of course, to define that perfect profile and only hire people with those kind of capabilities. We don't think that is the right way. So we rather would go for some people with some degree of spikiness. That has a, a a profile that is interesting and is complementing the entire team, but of course there are some kind of common denominators that we would like to see across the board, and that would be first that you are curious. I think it's very difficult to to invest as we do in something that is partly or totally kind of ahead of the curve. So looking at Chinovic in the past, we were early on and challenging the kind of the telecom monopoly in Sweden and media. We were kind of pioneers within e-commerce uh, with investments like Avito in Russia and then Zalando that became maybe our most successful investment. We were quite early into the healthcare space, to name a few, right? Without being curious, I think it's very difficult to ensure that you have that drive in the organization. That's one thing. The second thing I think you need also to be able i think to kind of switch i call it hats so from being positive to negative from you know changing the way you look at things of course you have people in your organization that some would say this person is, is typically more positive than negative that's fine but then pair that person up with someone else you know being maybe more skeptical so i think that is a way to kind of handle it in a group but I think it's important that everyone on an individual basis also can switch between these views and understand that during a investment process, you will basically go from being extremely positive to quite really negative, depending on what, what you hear and what you read and what you see. And the third thing is to not being afraid of failing, because I think that the worst thing that can happen to an investment, you know, professional or a group is that you're you know more afraid of failing than being a potential winner 
Because at the end of the day, when you have kind of reiterated that business case for the fourth time, you just need to give it a go and say, either we do this or we don't. And that conviction can, of course, partly be, be based on what you have in your actual business case, but it need also to be filled with experience. And today what I've seen, not being that long in this business, but I've seen more and more people that are probably leaning in or out in a case, depending what others, so not even people within your own firm, but what other firms think about a certain case. So you create this kind of noise that is either you know positive or negative around a certain things. And you don't go back to your own conviction, your own case, and your own team. Because it feels, of course, much safer to say that, you know, I trust them and they think this is a great thing. And of course, that creates the FOMO syndrome or, or, or similar things. And I think that's very dangerous. Yeah, totally agree. I just want to change tack a little bit. And it's always good having late stage investors on the podcast because I'm surrounded by early stage and so broadly is, is James. I mean, the founders who can take a company from zero to one are often quite different from the ones who can go from one to a hundred or 10 to a hundred or whatever. And there's probably only quite a sort of small overlap, quite a rare overlap of profiles who can go from zero to one and one to a hundred. And so I'm just, I just want to kind of understand how you guys look at founders and whether you care about the founder being the CEO when you invest. Because, you know, sometimes there are amazing people going to zero to, from zero to one, those hacky sorts of founders. Is that something you look at or are you perfectly happy to invest in companies that have brought in a new CEO as the company kind of goes from very hacky to actually needing a real leader as they scale? I mean, I'm a hired gun myself, so it would be stupid of me to say that you can't be hired as a CEO, right? But, but jokes aside, and we, of course, would love to see that the founder is the CEO, also when the business becomes more of a growth assets beyond basically one, as you say. The important thing is the founder, they understand that there's a transition between being a founder, from being a founder to being a CEO. And I spoke with a, you know, an extraordinary entrepreneur and founder and CEO, Daniel Ek at Spotify. And I think he he said that when he did that transition, he realized that as a founder, you were there to basically come up maybe with the idea to test it and to set the culture. That was the main responsibility of being a founder. But then it became a job that you almost kind of apply for. And you need to challenge yourself and say, am I the right person? Do I have what it takes? Do I want to have this role? And if yes, you need to take that as seriously as anyone else coming in externally. So you can't pull the founder card all the time being the CEO. No way. You're the CEO right now and you need to respect that. It's a job. And how you execute on that journey, I mean, there's no blueprint, right? Because there's so many different companies and challenges and so forth. But you need to be open to develop your skill set. If that means you need to go and ask other CEOs that you admire or having a mentor or you know, leadership training, whatever it is, that's fine, as long as you see that there's a difference between the CEO role and being a founder of a business. And of course, when we see 
strong founders that have scaled their businesses that can still kind of nurture the culture as a founder in the most authentic way that probably only founders can do, they have so much for free. And if they can combine that by being a good CEO, an excellent CEO, an appreciated CEO, I think it's a slam dunk. But again, should we see a founder that comes to a conclusion that is better that the company gets an external CEO, we wouldn't run away either. It very much depends on, on what role would that founder continue to play? Why is that founder giving the baton to a CEO? And of course, more importantly, do we believe that the CEO has enough skin in the game, long-term view, etc.? Because I think the most excellent founder, they're not here to make money. They're here to actually solve a problem and to create a great business and create customer value. And then you kind of almost, almost take that for granted when you meet great founders. But unfortunately, I think you don't, can't take that for granted when you look at CEOs. So if you have that authentic long-term view from a CEO, I think it can definitely work. So, Georgie, there'll be a bunch of people listening who are at, at the earlier stages of their career. And so if you were to give advice to anyone who's starting out in the technology or venture space, what advice would you give them, at, you know, under 25-year-olds who are just getting into the world of tech and venture? Well, um, that's a big question. I mean, firstly, I think you should try to enjoy your life and your job as much as possible and not necessarily think too much about your career or the long-term plans. I think if you, if you have something that you're good at, mostly it's highly correlated with, with what you actually think is fun. So if you see that you are losing a lot of energy or something that it, you know, costs a lot, probably that is not the right, the right task for you. And be fine by not doing that then. Because everyone... I think that mostly what I see also the trend, they want to be perfect in every single dimension. And it's very difficult. And to allow that spikiness I was referring to and say, listen, I'm really good at this. So let me continue doing that because I like it. I, I am, I'm good at it and I'm becoming better at it. Because if you try to kind of lay that perfect puzzle, I think you end up in being average rather than someone that is that is excellent in something that's one thing the second thing is that all the things are changing very fast around us and there are so many things coming you know it's like new technologies every year or let's say more than every year more frequently than every year but things are happening so so fast i think you need to combine that with some patience because it's not possible to develop that fast as a human being as the market might adapt you know technology or or launch a different features and so forth and, and sometimes i think we underestimate how valuable it is to do something for a longer period of time and to go through you know different type of cycles and to understand i mean that's what we are in now quite difficult market when it comes to sentiment for growth growth stocks or growth companies in general and I'm not sure that some people today realize how valuable this is, what we're going through now. What we will learn, you know, the coming 12 to 18 months and the past year, 
is probably what will, will define good companies going forward and good employees and good people. That's a good time to come in with a question that I was going to ask later, but it's just about market sentiment at the moment. And you know, we, we as VCs hear about it all the time and we're surrounded by it, but a lot of our listeners will be working in startups and probably less up to speed on exactly what's going on. But I think everyone's basically heard that VC is crashing, that startup valuations are crashing. And some of that is a reality. Some is is blown up partly by the press. But we've heard enough about the negative. So what, what excites you about VC at the moment? What, what do you think are the opportunities presented by what's going on? Yeah, but I mean, firstly, I'm lucky enough to have seen kind of the IT crisis. I was part of it, right? So we founded this business within speech technology exactly around that time. And then we saw the financial crisis. And now we see this, it's a combination of a lot of things, as we know. So it's a little bit difficult, I think, to predict how it will kind of develop. But the point is that in every crisis, you kind of, again, see companies that are surviving and becoming better at what they're doing, more efficient, increase their effectiveness. And also you see, I mean, in our portfolio today, we see those founders that are amazing in, in, in accepting these challenges. And we actually saw that in part of our portfolio during the pandemic, right? Because we had a few investments within the travel space. And you can imagine what happened when revenue went from a lot to nothing or even negative revenue in kind of a couple of months because they had kind of more reimbursement than, than, <laughs> than positive revenue. So, so absolutely crazy in how you can build a strong organization and even stronger culture during that difficult time and emerge as a winner when things become better. So I think as an investor, I really believe that there are so many opportunities for us to firstly invest in our existing portfolio and double down you know, in those companies that typically would not raise at these valuations if they didn't have to. And if we have long-term conviction, we can be there and support them. And of course, other companies in the market where we have you know, today completely different dialogues with. Last year, there were very fast processes of, you know, could be 48 hours to kind of commit a term sheet, hardly kind of no investment opportunity without fierce competition and so forth. Now it's a different thing, right? I'm not saying that we should, as an investor, say, now it's our time to give back. Let's squeeze the founders. That's definitely not the right attitude, but you can take the time to have a completely different type of, of you know, dialogue and, and create a, a much better relationship with a founder or, or founders that can, I think, bring the best out of both parties, if you will. So that's, that's the clear opportunity. And I also believe that today there's hardly no distinction between great companies or mediocre or even bad companies. Everything has gone down the basement, right, in terms of valuations. And maybe some people will argue that that was the case last year, but the other thing, the other way around. But if we believe that we are somewhat good stock pickers because we select actually not the average portfolio, but we are better than the average, that's why we have this job. This means that we could both kind of, as I said, double down in the existing companies and select a new, a new set of companies right now. But you need to be long-term. You need to have the perspective of being ready to wait 
for this market. I wouldn't use the word bounce back, but to become somewhat more sober than just to say that everything is extremely negative. Yeah, and I think that's one of the good and bad things about venture is that it is a longer term outlook. So when we're making investments now, although it's a tough market and you obviously, for us at early stage, we have to be aware of what is the valuation going to be at the next round and have they got enough runway to hit the numbers for that round and everything. We are also taking a sort of seven plus year view on this business. And so you're trying to still back good companies that are still going to be around, but are going to just ride that wave for, for that long. Shinevit, you guys do quite a lot of consumer investing. You mentioned healthcare and fintech and stuff like that. Um, I just wanted to sort of ask quite a simple question around, there are some things that you can look at on a consumer business like LTV cap ratios and total addressable market and things like that. And if those numbers look good, then it, it feels like a bit of a no-brainer. But what is the sort of art side of investing in consumer I think this is an area where you also need to have a balance, right? So at the end of the day, we only invest in companies we believe have healthy business model and, you know, path, a path, a clear path to profitability. But since we are a patient permanent capital vehicle and we have lead shareholders of flesh and blood that rather invest for generations rather than quarters or weeks or days, as we see at the moment right now, in the public market, we have the luxury of looking a little bit ahead. That's, I think that's something that is maybe not unique to only us, but definitely that's a differentiator. But that doesn't mean that we don't care about the metrics, the unit economics and all other things that, you know, net retention rates and so forth are things we carefully look at because we need to understand that this is a healthy business model. And if we don't see those metrics being great today, we need to ask ourselves, what do we need to believe in for those metrics to be good? That's where the kind of the risk component comes in, because everything that looks excellent will have clearly a high valuations or a lot of people running there to invest. And we might not be the biggest investor, but if we have expertise around understanding the team, understanding the market opportunity, or as in healthcare, we've been investors there for six, seven years. We have a good network of advisors, of co-investors, founders and ex-founders that we can speak to. We understand certain opportunities, I think, better than the kind of the generic investor, if you will. So that increased kind of conviction can be extremely helpful. And for consumer services, that is exactly the case. I would say that we are not experts in fashion or in travel or anything like that, but we understand the business model of marketplaces that we have seen for a long period of time. Then, of course, when we have a few travel assets, such as Travel Perk, Omeo, and Gordian, we can, of course, pool that experience and we can become better also in that subsector. But at the end of the day, the value we bring is in that we understand the shift from kind of physical classic sales to online sales and what it takes for a good company to grab market share to generate strong returns. So that is a combination, I think, of being very analytical, but also understanding what do we need to believe in? Because if there's nothing to believe in, what's our point? You can have computers saying what you should invest in. I think it's a, it's a great point. And we try and run some assumption models ourselves around, you know, what do we need this company to do for it to be successful and 
if you can see a clear path to that, it makes things a lot easier. Georgie, thank you so much. I mean, we've covered some great stuff. I mean, maybe slightly selfishly from Hector and I, we've covered a lot of stuff about, you know, the inner workings of, of Chinevik and, and your role. And it's been fascinating, certainly for us. And hopefully it will be for our audience as well. But certainly lots of insight provided. As we explained at the beginning, we like to end our podcast with our dinner party guest game. So if you were to have dinner with any three people in history, who would they be? That is maybe the toughest question, right? <laughs> to select only three people, and then you have to think about how they will interact with each other, right? But if I do it easy and, and say that what would be kind of fun and exciting to discuss and to see, it probably be a combination of different characters again. I'm thinking of one person being Hans Rosling, so the, the professor that tragically passed away, because I, I like his way of, of describing things in a way that is quite easy to understand. And today, with the com complexity we have in society at large, I think he will be a wonderful person to discuss with, right? And to ask questions, what he thinks about the crazy thing, things we see around us. A second person would be Ada Lovelace. I don't know about her, but she she could be the first kind of programmer or first coder ever. So way before we had computers, she defined an algorithm that a machine was supposed to run. And the, the, the twist to the story here is that uh, since I'm an engineer, I was actually using a language called Ada at one point. So the computer language that she much later gave name to. But it would be interesting to see her reaction showing her, you know, a smartphone and 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 the World Wide Web and, and, and things like that. And to see if that creates some reactions or, or some new ideas. And the third person would be Ricky Gervais, because he might be, you know, the funniest person alive. And he's also a dog dog lover. I love dogs. So, you know, to have some good laughs at the dinner party. Yeah, that's going to be an amazing group. Lots of stuff for our listeners to indulge in. So thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you very much, guys. My pleasure. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media. And we'll see you on the next episode.